The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we're turning to God's Word, the book of Exodus, where we're continuing in our series. And if you've been with us, you know that we've come through the plagues, we've come through the Passover, we've come through the Red Sea, and we've arrived now at the edge of the desert. And at each step of the story so far, we've seen God's steadfast love and His protection and His salvation for His people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we're going to see God's steadfast love and his protection and his salvation again tonight. If you turn with me to Exodus 15, uh, we're going to start at the end, uh, midway through Exodus 15 at verse 22. Uh, Again, this is a longer passage of scripture we're going to look at. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read up through chapter 16, verse 13, Uh, Then I'll summarize the bulk of chapter 16 and close with a few verses from chapter 17. I think these three stories, though, belong together. And it's when we read them together that God's character and man's character shine in all of their fullness. So let's read God's word together, starting in Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. And there... The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, And they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they'd gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, 
At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp. And here we have the story of Manal summarized in the rest of 16. We have the coming of this honey, honey bread, this manna that comes each day. And the people are able to gather as much as they need for that day. They're told, though, not to keep it overnight. The Lord will provide for you day by day. You don't need to stockpile and hedge against the Lord's goodness. Some of the people, of course, disobey and do try to hedge against the Lord's goodness and get as much as they can, and, and, it, and it goes bad and stinks. And then the Lord gives the Sabbath command that on the sixth day they can gather twice as much, and there will be none on the Sabbath. And once again, the people aren't sure that they trust the Lord and they go out on the Sabbath morning anyways to gather manna and it's not there. And uh, the Lord challenges the people to listen to his laws and his commandment. Uh, But in the end of the chapter then, uh, they're told to gather a portion of the manna and keep it in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's faithfulness. They... um, They then come at the beginning of 17, and I want to pick up at the beginning of chapter 17 and read the first eight verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And and Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And pray, Father, this is your word that you have given to us, your people. We pray that you would use it in our hearts to make us more like you and to give glory to your name. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Those of you who are parents, you 
probably had a situation where maybe one of you comes into the kitchen, say the father comes into the kitchen just in time to hear his son sort of whine and demand, you know, give me a drink. And the father might say something like, now son, that is not how you ask for a drink. I'd like you to try that again. But maybe his mother's in the kitchen and says, oh no, that's the third time in five minutes that he's whined and demanded something. He's not going to get a drink at all until he can learn to ask correctly. Because the context is everything. You need the whole picture of the story to see the true heart of what's going on. And the same is true here. As we pick up the narrative of this story, Israel has just come off a joyful celebration of God parting the Red Sea, killing the Egyptian army, and rescuing his people. In fact, chapter 14 ended by saying, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. And chapter 15 is entirely taken up of a song of praise to God for his powerful deliverance. When we pick up the story, Israel's moving out of the wilderness of Shur, and we're told that they've marched three days from the Red Sea. Three days they've been on the march since the Lord rescued them at the Red Sea, since the Egyptian army was killed, when the people are brought up to a problem. In that three days, there has been no water, and there's still no water. And so the people of Israel are faced with this question. The Lord our God can beat an Egyptian army, but what can he do in the middle of the desert when there's no water? We don't see a way out of this. And so they grumble against the Lord. And one might hope that having feared the Lord and seen the power, his power, they might believe in him, but three days and a great thirst later has brought them up short, and they grumble in despair. And yet the Lord responds by making the bitter water sweet, providing for his people, and then bringing them to Elam, this oasis of 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Picture the resort, the oasis of comfort and provision as they have a water in abundance in the middle of the desert. It's a sweet foretaste, I think, of the promised land to come. God says, see, I will provide for you, and here's what's coming. What a good response of the Lord. But it's just a few weeks later, refreshed by God's goodness, Israel moves on from Elam into the wilderness of Sin, and this time there's no food, and Israel doubts again. Okay, God, when there was bitter water, you could make it sweet, but what when there's nothing at all? There's no food at all. What are you going to do now, God? Israel's sure God has brought them out to kill them, and they start daydreaming about these wonderful pots of meat and the beautiful fluffy bread that they could eat to their foil. You know, never mind the slavery part. They're just thinking the meat pots and bread, and they wonder why Moses and God just want to watch them die. But God responds again, and he says, get ready. I'm going to rain bread down on you. I'm going to pour out meat on you in abundance so that you have good food to eat. And quail comes up in the evening and honey bread in the morning and the people eat and no one is left hungry. And again, God provides an overwhelming blessing. So just a couple more weeks go by and Israel moves on to Rephidim. 
and this time there's no water at all. And we're given some timelines here, and so we know that all three of these episodes, all together, less than three months, less than three months have passed that have included the Passover, the killing of Pharaoh's eldest son, the Red Sea, parting, and the salvation of God's people, water provided in shore, food rained down at sea, and all this has happened within three months. And now, again, there's no water. But God's people, instead of waiting to see how God's going to provide this time, go back to the refrain they've echoed three times now. Well, why'd you bring us out here to die? And we wonder, have we not realized that God has not brought them out here to die, but to provide for them? And I think in our hearts, we sympathize with Moses when he says, what do I do with this people? Love that prayer to God. What shall I do with this people? We, we, we feel the same way when we read this. And yet once again, God comes and provides bringing water out of the rock and giving the people water to drink. As I read through these three stories, two surprising things just jumped out of the text at me. And I want to look at these two things tonight in our time together. First, the absurdity of Israel's response immediately draws our attention. And I have to admit that I'm a fairly forgetful person. Last Sunday morning, I took our two-year-old out of the sanctuary during the morning worship service, and I forgot to take the diaper bag with me. And 15 minutes later, I was left with a dirty diaper and a rather stinky time of it. But the next morning, perhaps with this fresh in mind, as I walked out to the van, again without the diaper bag, my wife walked out into the garage and said, I think you might need this. And I'm buckling my two-year-old into the car, and I said, well, that's great. Thank you. Just put it on the ground there, and I'll get it after I buckle her in. And of course, then I backed out of the garage, left with the diaper bag still sitting on the garage floor, having forgotten it yet again. But even my own forgetfulness seems like nothing compared to Israel's here when we read these three stories right in a row. Time and time again, Israel is just sure that God is going to kill them. Despite dividing the Red Sea, making a lake drinkable, raining down bread, making rivers spring from rocks, even when God's miracles are right in front of them, they still doubt God. And I don't want us to miss that when God provides them manna, and there's manna all over the ground for them, even then they're still hedging their bets, gathering more than God told them to, in case God doesn't rain the bread down tomorrow. Not only does Israel forget from one miracle to the next, but even with the miracles right in front of them, God's people are still hedging their bets, not sure that God is still going to keep providing for them. In the end, Israel turns the tables on God. God says that he's providing these opportunities to test Israel so that they can see his goodness. But in chapter 17, right at the end in verse 7, we're told that Israel actually tested God and said, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, God, if we don't get water, then that's a sign that you must not be with us. And so Israel, as the people, are now testing God and demanding that he act according to their standards. At some point in these stories, as I read it, I almost thought, you know, it seems to me like it would be harder not to trust God than to trust him at this point. And when we've read these four or five stories of salvation, it seems like it almost would take effort not to trust him. But 
in the end, what we're told in Psalm 95 is that this is not a matter of forgetfulness. This is actually a matter of hardness of heart. In Psalm 95, the psalmist, looking back to this episode, said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, uh, put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. See, Israel's central problem here is not a memory problem. It's not something that's wrong with their minds. It's a heart problem. It's a hardness of heart that doubts God's goodness if he doesn't act the way they expect or want. And this is why Moses tells the Israelites in, in chapter 16, verse 17, or it's verse 7, that their grumbling is not against Moses and Aaron, but against God himself. And I think it's here that Scripture guides us to the heart of grumbling. What is the sin of grumbling? The sin of grumbling, all complaining, is a hardness of heart that accuses God, that questions God's goodness or accuses him of not being good or wise in the providence that he has brought about in our lives. That's the heart of grumbling. And so here we see Israel again and again in the hardness of their heart, accusing God, doubting God and his goodness despite his displays. But of course, we have to pause because we don't have to rewind the camera on our own hearts very far to find the grumbling and the doubts and the discontentment in our own hearts as well. God answers our prayers one day, and days later, we don't see his answer so clearly, and cynicism begins to slip into our hearts, wondering why God doesn't answer prayer. God provides for us again and again, and yet when things aren't the way we want them to be, we grumble and complain and we're discontent with what God has given us. We hear God's word saying in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And yet when trouble hits, we wonder how God can be good and let these things happen. The problem is, I think, that our culture, and our culture as Christians, as the church, has come to accept complaining as an acceptable sin. Complaining is something we sort of expect that we will see in our hearts. We'll sort of expect from one another, and we don't see it as all that bad. I look at my own life, and and I see this constantly, and as we head into winter, perhaps I'll uh, lose some of your goodwill when I say this, but I'm reminded of my central area of complaining when it comes to snow, because I love snow. I would have snow every day if I could have snow every day. And we live in a county that we often get snow predicted and then it doesn't happen. Or they predict eight inches of snow and we get one inch. And I complain all the time when that happens. And my wife has to remind me graciously that the snow is something that God brings or doesn't bring as well. And so if I'm complaining, I'm complaining about God's providence, even in this little area. But there's far more serious situations than snow in our lives, aren't there? There's doubt, and there's discontentment, and there's grumbling. And it usually comes about because we're focused on our desires, our needs, our perspective, our timeline, and our expectations. And they become the definitive test of whether God is good or not. There's an army behind me. There's no food. Money's running low. I didn't get that job. My kids are a mess. School is stressful. 
I'm tired, but I can't sleep. I guess God isn't good after all. And we need the jolt of these three stories right in a row to shine a floodlight on our hearts and remind us that when we are discontent and when we complain about life, when we doubt God's goodness, we do so directly in the face of God's word and God's works and God's salvation. Given how much God has told us and shown us his goodness to the point even of sacrificing his own son for us, our complaining is just as absurd as Israel's. And so when we read this story and think that Israel's sin sounds illogical and absurd, we need to turn the light on our own hearts and see our grumbling and complaining as sin against God's goodness, just as Israel's was. But Exodus 15 to 17 is not primarily about grumbling. In fact, I think if we leave tonight thinking mostly about how we shouldn't grumble, we'll have missed the central point of this passage. And so we have to look at the second thing that just jumps off the page of these stories. The second thing, I think, is the main point of this passage. And that is that again and again and again, God shows his patient, steadfast, gracious love and provision for his people. God's people cry out for water in a demanding voice, but God provides them with water. God's people cry out for food, and God gives them food. God's people cry out for water again, and God gives them water. We know that two years after this, in the book of Numbers, as Israel is still complaining and grumbling against the Lord, plagues do come. God punishes his people. But I found myself, as I read through these three stories and turned the page, looking for the plague to hit. I kept looking to see, now, where again does God strike the people with disease? Or where again does God kill a bunch of the Israelites for their grumbling? Only to remember that it's not here. There is no punishment for this grumbling. Instead, God's goodness literally rains down on his people again and again. And here in the early stages of Israel's journey out of Egypt, we see this stark contrast between the grumbling of the people and the graciousness and patience of the Lord's response. He leads them to 12 springs and 70 palm trees. He rains bread and meat down on the people in abundance. He causes rivers to spring out of the rock. And when the people are doubting whether the Lord is among them or not, God graciously shows up in a glory cloud and says, Here, here is my presence. I am with you. Why does God do this? Why doesn't the plague hit? Why does God provide again and again? I think first because God is faithful. God has made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he will bring his descendants into the promised land. And God in these provisions is keeping his people alive and fulfilling his promises that he's made to his people. And because God is gracious and God is so kind, Israel, remember, is still fresh off of generations in Egypt. They're fresh off one generation after another of living in a pagan culture, of being enslaved, of being around pagan gods. Who is this Yahweh? What does Israel know about the Lord their God? 
And I think God is leading them by the hand patiently and persistently in the early stages of their journey, showing them again and again his patience, his power, and his goodness. He is doing so through tests, but through each test he's saying, I'm going to show you again. I'm going to show you again how good I am, how gracious I am how patient I am, how I'm going to preserve you and fulfill all of my promises. This is who I am as Yahweh. And isn't that who we see God to be all throughout the Old Testament? Isn't this who God proclaims himself to be? I, I am the Lord your God, gracious and compassionate, showing mercy to thousands from one generation to the next. Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Micah seven eighteen. who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. We're getting a picture of who the Lord is here, patiently, persistently teaching Israel what it means to live in relationship with him, this good, merciful, kind, compassionate God. And I have to admit, as I was preparing this sermon and as I was reading this text, there was an instinct in my heart that was still questioning, but is the Lord really that gracious and merciful? Like, isn't there a catch here? Like, isn't there, isn't there something where, you know, I should obey first or, or that God's like setting this up so there's going to be punishment later or, and I was, I was surprised to see in my heart this slowness to believe that the goodness and gracious kindness and patience of the Lord would extend so dramatically to God's people to show them his heart of steadfast love. Now, of course, none of this denies the importance of trust and obedience. None of this denies that God will discipline his disobedient people when that's needed. But God is a perfect heavenly father. He knows when discipline is needed and he knows when patient kindness is needed. And here at the beginning is of Israel's journey. We see this long-suffering, compassionate, steadfast love of the Lord that displays his glory and patience and I think woos his people to trust him and ought to lead us to awestruck praise. In fact, it's interesting. When Israel does eventually stand on the border of the promised land, having gone through many instances of disobedience and some instances of discipline and punishment as well. And they look back on their time through the wilderness. I think it's interesting what gets highlighted in Deuteronomy as the people remember their time in the desert. I usually think of the time in the desert as a place of suffering and disobedience. But it's interesting that Deuteronomy highlights God's provision. Deuteronomy 1 says, In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Deuteronomy 2 says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. And most fully in Deuteronomy 8, He humbled you and let you hunger. And then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers knew. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Do you see Deuteronomy emphasizing again and again that the wilderness was a time of God's gracious provision and protection and providing and humbling and care for his people? And what's the point? What's the purpose of these three wilderness episodes? Certainly to show Israel their sin, yes, but so much an invitation to trust the Lord's goodness again and again an invitation to show with crystal clarity the power, faithfulness, and goodness of Yahweh who could be trusted in the face of any situation. And these three, these three episodes show that with so much clarity. I think as we pause maybe for application, it's worth us remembering that the Bible says that we're also walking in the wilderness We've seen the Lord's salvation in Christ just as Israel had seen their salvation at the Red Sea. But we're still waiting for our final rest in the promised land just as Israel was. And our journey in between the moment of our salvation and our future hope is a passage through the wilderness. But the wilderness, while it includes challenges, while it includes times when we may not see the Lord's provision right away, just as Israel did not, the wilderness is not a bad thing. It is an opportunity to see the Lord's care for us. One commentator put it this way. He said, the wilderness calls us to remember two truths. First, that this wilderness is not our home. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our hope is not here. Our treasure is not here. Meaning and fulfillment are not found here. We should not expect to find these things here in a broken world that longs for the fullness of salvation that is still ahead of us. But at the same time, this world is still God's world. He's still fully in control, fully guiding us and giving us everything that we need. And so in the wilderness, we look to God's steadfast love, God's gracious kindness, and God's trustworthy presence with us day by day even while we endure and wait and look steadfastly to the hope that is still before us. So here's Israel, walking through the wilderness, encouraged day by day to depend upon God's goodness and faithfulness as they ate the manna that God gave them again and again. And you can see what a thing it would have been to have a miracle of bread from heaven each morning. You can only imagine waking up each day and taking that in my fingers and saying, I can touch the faithfulness, and the provision of God. But brothers and sisters, we have something far better. We have something better than manna that could be touched. Because remember the conversation that Jesus has with the people in John 6? Jesus summoned the crowds to believe in him, and the people said, Now, Jesus, what sign will you do that we may see and believe? They said, See, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, their question is, well, Jesus, can you do anything as awesome as making bread rain down from heaven so that we can touch it and see your power as God? But Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people immediately say, well, sir, give us that bread. 
In other words, that bread would be even better than manna that I can hold in my fingers. And Jesus says, I am that bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. See, this is a sweet and soul-satisfying offer. Jesus offering him, us himself as the one who's better than manna, who gives life for our soul. So brothers and sisters, have you been living in the brokenness of the world? Maybe in the unsatisfying rebellion of our sin and the hardness of our heart that cannot give up on our demands and expectations to trust the goodness of God? If so, will you come to Jesus, to the bread that satisfies? Maybe you have come to Christ, but the wilderness still seems overwhelming. Does the hunger and thirst of the wilderness road still seem too much for you to bear? Remember this, your patient, good Father has given you not just daily bread, but the daily presence of Jesus, the Son of God, the bread of life. He doesn't just give satisfaction and fullness so we can go off and live our life in self-sufficiency. He gives us His Son so that we can live daily in dependence upon Him and the fullness of life brought by the Son of God. The food and water of life come as we rest on him. In Exodus, God's people rested by 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They ate honey bread and meat day after day. But Jesus comes saying those things were just pictures. Pictures and preludes to the rest and satisfying goodness that God offers to all who come to him in Christ. And so the question is, will we rest on this bread of life this week? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this glorious provision of Jesus Christ. When I think of how good and kind, merciful and gracious you were to provide manna rain down from heaven day after day to sustain your people. And then I think that Jesus says, oh, that was nothing compared to me. I have come to give you life day by day, life abundantly, that leads to eternal life, fullness of life. Lord, this week, whatever we may walk through, may we have joy in the life of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.